Hey, what's up everybody? This is Taylor from Game Devs Quest with this week's quick tip. So the last week I found myself just kind of sore, like my body didn't feel very good, like I didn't even know why, like my jaw was sore, I, I think I slept on it weird, and my body was just not feeling great. So it's 2019, the year just started, I think now is a good time to have a goal of taking care of your body. And by that, what I really mean is spend some time stretching. One of my new goals is to wake up early, which I've been trying to do, but also make sure that I spend at least 30 minutes in the morning moving my body and also stretching. So I'm going to start with a 20-minute exercise of just kind of like indoor, maybe I'll like run a little bit, do some high knees, some butt kicks, some jumping jacks, just kind of get the blood flowing. And then I have a little weight set for myself, so I'm going to do some weight exercises, but you can also do some body weight only exercises like push-ups and sit-ups and things like that. But then make sure you spend some time stretching. I've heard that one of the biggest things that people suffer from when they're old is joint problems. And I think if you spend the time now when you're younger doing that stretching, your, your body's going to feel better. But also it's going to help help you when you're older, make sure you're, you avoid some of those injuries as well. So take 2019, focus on your body, be healthy. I know we sit a lot, so this is very important. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to this week's episode of Game Devs Quest. I got a special one lined up for you. Uh, partially because Rhett is off in Las Vegas for the CES conference as part of Craft Computing, um, getting a sneak peek on a ton of technology. But also, I have something special going on this week that hasn't come up too often for me and has been a goal of mine for more than five years. So there was an opening, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, there was an opening in the city where I work for a sort of junior level software developer position. Um, and I applied for that and I heard back that I have a phone interview on Thursday, uh, so in a couple days. And heard on Friday, so I, I spent my weekend um, spending a lot of time going over the fundamentals of uh, a lot of programming concepts, object-oriented stuff primarily. And so I thought this might be a fun opportunity to go through some of the things I've been practicing um, to help some of you guys who might be in a similar position where, you know, you haven't got any professional experience as a software developer. So you don't really have the footing that some of the other people who would be applying for these types of jobs might have. And I am somebody who always wants to prepare for things. I, I always want to be ready. I've had experiences in the past, like the only other software development position that I ever applied for and, and got an interview for was at my last company that I worked for. And I, I don't think I prepared well enough. And there were some questions that I should have known the answer to, but I just like blanked out on. And so I've spent a good amount of time practicing for this. And I really, really, really want this job because I think it would be uh, a great way to get my foot in the door for future employment in software development. Uh, you know, as part of this podcast, we spend a lot of time programming our games and I enjoy programming. And this last, these last couple of years have been 
about learning game development, about making games, having fun with, with games, but also about becoming better programmers and potentially landing jobs to make it easier for, for us to be game developers. So this is going to be a little bit of a special episode. I'm putting myself out there uh, <laughs> because I might embarrass myself trying to answer some of these questions. So for those of you guys who are professional programmers, you might just pass on this one. Um, or if you want to just get a refresher on some of these concepts, uh, that's cool too. Or if you want to give me a critique, also welcome. But this is mostly meant for junior level developers or people who don't yet have any professional experience as software developers. So we're going to get into it. I, I first want to just talk a little bit about the job itself. Um, it's kind of an open-ended position. They're hiring two for two people that um, could fall in different ranges. I think primarily they're looking for junior level people, but they also list you know the upper levels as well. So I think if a candidate is good enough, they might not be junior level. But the focus on this, uh, some of the, the key pieces of the job, one of the bullets here says they're looking for a self-starter with solid experience in analyzing, designing, and developing applications using object-oriented concepts in a .NET environment using C Sharp. They say experience with HTML5 and CSS is a plus, and also knowledge of database design concepts and the ability to write SQL in a Microsoft SQL Server environment. Um, then it kind of lists some pretty general stuff about like good communication things, uh, you know, being being a hardworking employee. And uh, another one is uh, knowing agile development. So it feels very open-ended. I'm not sure if they're going to ask me too many technical questions. I think they'll probably ask a lot of questions about like try, trying to basically just get a candidate who's passionate about programming, not necessarily like someone who's Google level, you know, like whiteboarding algorithms on, on the, you know, in front of them or whatever. But I did focus a lot on the technical side uh, during my preparation. And granted, today is only Monday, so I have a couple more days of preparation, and this podcast is part of that preparation. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go through some of the um, some of the sources or resources that I had for preparing for this that have a lot of questions about preparing for interviews. Um, the first thing that I did, uh, my library that I work for has a subscription to lynda.com. And because this is primarily a .NET position, I found a, a course called Nail Your C-Sharp Developer Interview. And it breaks down a, a bunch of categories of things they might ask you in a C-Sharp related interview. And from there, I dug into, there's another article called Top 50 C-Sharp Interview Questions with Answers. And I'll have links to all these in the show notes, um, but I'll probably just pick some off of here. I'm hoping that I don't go over an hour here, but I'm, I'm probably going to end up breaking this into a couple parts. And then the other bit is that after I do the interviews, I, I assume after a phone interview, there will be at least one in-person interview. I want to have other episodes that talk about how it went and things that I maybe didn't prepare for enough and things that I probably over-prepared for. But anyways, so we got the lynda.com course, this 50 C-sharp questions. Um, another one that I hit hard was 
from indeed.com seven programmer interview questions and answers and those ones are much more general they're about like your favorite programming language and stuff like that so i'll hit some of those as well it also calls out sql so i haven't really done a lot of preparing for this um, but I found another 50 SQL interview questions that I might hit as well. And in the lynda.com course, he specifically calls out database questions. All right, so let's get into some of the main questions. I'll probably mostly focus on the object-oriented stuff and C-sharp, uh, which ties into game development because a lot of game engines use C-sharp. So anyways, first question what is the difference between reference types and value types? All right, so now I'm on the spot. So value types basically are primitive objects or uh, primitive types. So you have like your integers, your uh, booleans, uh, enums, I believe are value types. And then reference types are actual objects like classes. Um, I think strings are also reference types. and uh, the difference is kind of how they live in memory. Value types live on the stack and reference types live on the heap. And the value types are much quicker to access because they, they live on the stack. stack. The stack is usually pretty small. Uh, and I believe each like scope inside of a program has its own stack. So like each function or method has its own stack, uh, which is really easily like queued up and destroyed. And then the heap is much more complicated because it's kind of this unordered thing that holds real data or, um, yeah. So like if I were to create an integer I and, and assign it a value of five, we're gonna put five on the stack. And then if I were to, you know, assign uh, an integer J equal to I, it's actually going to copy that value on the stack five and put it where J lives on the stack. So it's a physical, well, it's a, it's a copy of I. Whereas if I were to create say a class and you know give it some values, uh, some properties like an animal class, maybe it has a name property, that all will live in the heap. And then on the stack, you'll have a reference pointing at that object in the heap. And if I were to create, um, let's see, basically the difference is how the, the memory is managed with value types and reference types. I feel like this would be a good question to potentially whiteboard because you could show some differences in, in you know, like, well, one, one example is like if you create an integer and you create a object and then you pass those values into a method that changes them outside the scope of that method the integer that you created in like main will stay the same because it actually copies it whereas the object's values will change because it's actually referencing that point in memory <laughs> all right that was a long-winded answer but there you go that's how i understand reference types and value types that was a recommendation by the lynda.com course so I'll probably just go over a lot of those questions first. All right, next question. What is an interface? All right, so an interface is basically a class that has no actual um, implementation. And oftentimes people 
compare it to a contract. So, for instance, you might have an interface that is iAnimal and it has properties like name, but then it also has a method speak. And the implementations of those things are not living in the interface. A class will implement an interface and then they have to, by way of the contract basically, implement those things. So it has to have a name. If it implements iAnimal interface, it has to have a name and then it has to have a speak method and actually write out the code that makes the method do things. <laughs> um, so I think the key here is that the interfaces don't actually contain implementation code. All right. <laughs> this is a little bit odd, but... All right, what is an abstract class? And and I've seen a bunch of questions come up about comparing interfaces and abstract classes. So if you get both of those, I think it'd be a good idea to just do that comparison. So an abstract class is a class where parts of it can be implemented, but it's never instantiated, just like the interface. It can never be instantiated. And methods inside of the abstract class can be marked abstract or virtual. And a virtual method is kind of a default implementation of that method, whereas abstract is kind of like an interface where it says the, ob or the class that inherits from the, uh, the abstract class must create its own implementation of the abstract method. Whereas if you just inherit from an abstract class that has a virtual method, you can use the virtual method without implementing your own definition of that method in the subclass. Um, also, classes can only have, they can only inherit once from an abstract class. Uh, with, with, an, uh, with interfaces, they can implement, a class can implement as many interfaces as it want, but with C-sharp, a class can only inherit from one base class. Thus, it can only inherit from one base abstract class. Uh, so the keys there are that the differences with interfaces are you actually inherit from an abstract class and it can have some like partial definitions of methods, if that makes sense. All right. <laughs> what is a static class? So a static class is a class that is never instantiated. So you don't have to create instances of a static class to be able to use them. Um, all of its member methods and properties must be static and effectively like so console the console method that lives in the system namespace is a static class because like you don't every time you write to the console you don't have to create an instance of a console object you can just say console.writeline and it uh, will use the static class I think that's kind of the basics of it. Uh, so moving on, just going down the line here. Um, what are generics? Um, generics basically allow you to implement something without specifying a particular type. So an example would be in a list type of collection, you can implement any type of list. So it could be a list of integers. It could be a list of strings. It could be a list of a class that you yourself made, so a list of those objects. 
um, but the way that the list would be implemented itself is in a generic way so that it can handle all of those cases. Let's see, so the course, I'm like not looking at these notes, but the course says generics allow you to implement something that works with all types. It is a further level of abstraction. So I think I said that. Uh, another one here, this is more about object-oriented stuff. What is polymorphism? This one always kind of intimidates me just because the word polymorphism is kind of scary. But essentially, I think the word means like one, <laughs> one thing that has many forms. And so the way that this is used in object-oriented programming is basically like you can have one name for something that does different things based off of the context. So like, for instance, being able to override a method that has different types of parameters, right? Like you have a speak method. Maybe there's one that has no no parameters. And so by default, it just says like console.writeline hello. And if you call speak, it comes out with hello. But you can have another iteration of that where it takes in a language parameter. And when you call that speak method and put in a parameter, it has a different implementation. So maybe you put in Spanish, a Spanish string as the parameter, and then it has some sort of like switch statement in there that looks through all those and then outputs, you know, hola for hello or something. Might not be the best example, but that's kind of the, the basis for polymorphism. I think um, another example, uh, I'll probably butcher it, but it's basically like if you, so like if, if we're looking at an animal class that is a base class and then it has a subclass that's dog, when you go to instantiate a dog, dog object, you, like if you do it where you say animal A equals new dog, I think it polymorphically knows that the animal A is a dog, if that makes any sense. <laughs> so poly polymorphism just means like you use something that could mean different things based off of its context. There we go. <laughs> All right, what is encapsulation? Encapsulation. So when you use classes, encapsulation typically happens. It's a way of kind of protecting data uh, from outside use. So, for instance, when you use, when you create properties and make them private, that's a form of encapsulation. And also, and you know, one thing I'm a little bit confused about is the difference between encapsulation and abstraction, because another question that comes up often in my research of this is, what are the four pillars of object-oriented programming? And the answer to that is, let's see if I can get it, polymorphism, encapsulation, abstraction, and what's the fourth one? Polymorphism, encapsulation, abstraction, shoot. Oh, and inheritance. So I, like encapsulation in some ways, to me, is a form of abstraction because it kind of hides away unnecessary details. Like if you, like for outside consumption, like if you have a, a class that is instantiated, like you have an object that you've instantiated in the main method and you call like a, you know, get random function or whatever, that 
function. You like the outside consumer doesn't care about how it was implemented. It just cares that it's getting a random number. And so that's sort of like abstraction and encapsulation in a way, I think. I don't know. That might be a little bit sticky. Uh, let's see. So they say encapsulation prevents access to implementation details. So I think I got that. The user of a class doesn't need to know how something is done behind the scenes to be able to effectively use it. Okay. And then I guess the next question is, what is abstraction? And all it says is, wait, maybe I typed these notes wrong. Revealing relevant implementation details. That seems weird. Huh. Well, maybe I'll get docked points there. <laughs> um, all right, next question. What is inheritance? So, and, and another question that you often hear is, what is the difference between inheritance and composition? And this one's a little bit trickier, but I think I'll just answer it anyways. So with inheritance, you have an is a relationship. So you'll have a base class that has all these features about it. It might have attributes, but it might also have behaviors. And if you inherit from that object, if another class inherits from that object or that class, it gains access to all of those same features. And that can cause some complications depending on what you're trying to do. One example that I often hear is, let's say you haven't, I'll go back to my animal class example. So let's say I have an animal base class. A dog class inherits from the animal base class, so it gains all of those things about it. And then there's also a bird class. Well, in the base class, you don't want to define like a fly method, for instance, because dogs don't fly. So, well, one thing you could do is you can inherit from the base animal class and it's and then the duck or the bird class can implement a fly method but what happens if you have another animal that also flies so like you have a dragon class or something um, you don't want to have to continue making a fly method for each of those classes that needs that behavior so this is a prime example for using composition which I said inheritance has a an is a relationship. Well, composition has a uh, has a relationship, um, which basically means it has a bunch of components that you can swap in and out. So instead of inheriting all of these properties, you might just have classes that get plugged in with different behaviors. So like. You'll have a bird class, you'll have a dragon class, and they both imp or they both um, instantiate their own fly behavior that works the same way. And the nice part about that is that it decouples the code so that like you can make changes in the fly behavior without having it kind of unravel and affect both classes. If that makes any sense. Um, so there you go. There's the difference between inheritance and composition. I don't know that I've really used composition um, for that particular reason, but I know that in game development you use composition all the time 
Like how many times have you made a class in Unity where you have a an instance of an object inside of another class that I believe is technically composition. Um, all right, what else do I got here? Oh, I had, what are the four pillars of object-oriented programming? I already answered that. Uh, abstraction, polymorphism, inheritance, encapsulation. What is the CLR and FCL? So this is more of a .NET question. Um, CLR stands for Common Language Runtime. FCL stands for Framework, Framework Class Library. The CLR is the runtime that .NET applications run on and it offers benefits like garbage collection, uh, I believe type safety. I don't fully understand how that works, uh, which I think is okay. Um, the FCL is basically like all of the frameworks that are built into the .NET framework. So like ASP.NET is an example of a, of a component or whatever of the FCL. So is Entity Framework. Uh, that would be another example. I think maybe the languages that are supported, like F Sharp and C Sharp, are also considered part of the FCL, but I'm not really sure. So <laughs> hopefully that's fine. Oh, another one is like Link. That one's in there, which I need to get better at. I don't really know Link, but it's kind of cool. It's kind of like SQL, but in C Sharp. Um, okay, so next one, what is .NET? .NET is basically the platform God, I sound like an idiot. Uh, it's a platform that Microsoft developed to help make software development easier for, I guess now .NET Core is out, but for applications. And it includes things like the CLR. Uh, so one thing to point out about the CLR is that, like in its name, Common Language Runtime. Um, other other types of programming languages, like maybe C++, I'm not really sure, they, com they compile down straight to machine code which can sometimes cause compatibility issues because they might not know like what types of processors or whatever they are building for, but the common language runtime kind of deals with that for you. So it's kind of this in intermediary th thing that um, helps get the uh, source code, like the C-sharp code that we write, and make sure that it's like writing uh, in a way that's compatible for whatever processor is being used, I believe. I might have butchered that, but that is kind of how I understand it. There's also just-in-time compiling. Uh, wait, JIT, just-in-time. Yeah, just-in-time compilation, but I, I don't really understand how that fits in there either. I've read a bunch of books that talk about all those things, but it kind of doesn't uh, doesn't like stick with me. But uh, So what they said for... For what is .NET, they say it is a managed execution environment to build and run applications. It consists of two major components, the CLR and FCL. Okay, well, here we go. Uh, what is unmanaged versus managed code? So managed code is basically, well, I think um, languages that use the CLR is technically managed code. And I think the core piece here is the garbage collection component. Because garbage collection, basically, my understanding of it is it looks through the heap. It's kind of like a task or something that every once in a while it scans through the heap and looks for objects that no longer have references to them, which are just sitting in memory, taking up memory. 
And so garbage collector will find those and destroy them. Whereas unmanaged code or languages, I guess, they don't have garbage collectors, which means that they have to manually deal with these uh, these objects in memory. So you have, they have to manually destroy them in memory. And I think maybe that, like if you hear of a memory leak, I think that is due to bugs in the code where the uh, maybe a, there's a missed reference to an object that isn't destroyed. So it kind of like just continues to grow and grow and grow because all these objects are getting created and created and added to the heap and added to the heap. And then eventually it like freaks out because there's no more memory because none of those objects were getting deleted. So there you go. That's managed versus unmanaged code. I could be wrong on some of these pieces again. I'm just kind of like practicing my answers. They, they might not be perfect. They might not be right. And if you have any recommendations on any of these, let me know and I'll try to address them before Thursday. <laughs> Um, and I think also, just pointing this out, again, I don't think I'll get asked a lot of these. I'll probably get asked like three or four of these is my suspicion, but I want to be prepared for any, you know, very C-sharp .NET kind of question. So me personally, I don't have a lot of experience doing .NET things. It's mostly C-sharp things and object-oriented programming things. So I feel a little bit weaker about that piece, but... Whenever I've run into um, specific .NET things, like being able to write out, you know, to a text file or something, it's not hard to like Google how to how to use the .NET strategy for doing that. So I have confidence that I could just kind of figure it out on the fly. So another one, another question: uh, What's boxing and unboxing? And this question I've seen come up a lot as well. I don't really even know why anyone would box something, but I guess it used to be a, a fairly common practice. It's kind of a no-no at this point. I don't think you should be boxing things. But basically what it is, is when you want to take a value type and make it into a reference type. So if you want to have a an integer, for whatever reason, become a an object, what you end up doing is you say something like int i equals 5, and then you say on the next line, object O equals I. So that actually creates an object on the heap, and then it gives it a property that has an integer that's value is five. If you were to unbox that, you would just cast it to an integer. So that object, I think I said is O, you would just say like int J equals parentheses int close parentheses O and it would get the value five. Um, part of the reason you don't want to do this is that it's expensive to make these conversions, but I don't really know of a use case for why you would do this. So if anyone has an idea on why boxing happens or whatever, let me know. All right, so those were all the ones, the kind of basic C-sharp questions that, that I had on the list uh, from the lynda.com course. They also have some specific ones for ASP.NET and design patterns. So I'll talk a little bit briefly about those. Some of the questions were like, what's the ASP.NET page life cycle um, events and stages, which I don't really understand those. I don't think I'll be asked those. I might look over that again, but I'm going to pass on that. But I do think that I might be asked something about MVC 
And MVC technically is a design pattern. M is for model, V is for view, C is controller. And basically the purpose of MVC is to separate out uh, functionality within those components. I believe the principle is inversion of control, which is another fancy word. Um, and the model basically is just how data is represented in the application. Um, I might point out that if you want to use an MVC application, I would say you'd want to do this when you have a multi-page application. Uh, you also would use it when you actually are hooking up to a database. Um, part of the reason I say that, that it's multi-page would be because the controller actually deals with routing and the routing is dictated by the URL that's being used in the browser. So like if you have a, a student class, now this, so going back to the model, you'd have a student model and it might have things like an int student ID and a string name. And these are just, the model is basically just a class that would end up translating into a table in a, in a database. But then the, the controller would be able to figure out how to interact with the model based off of the URL it gets. So it might have a, you know, mysite.com forward slash uh, student forward slash index or something. And basically in the controller, it would have a method that is the index method. And it will kind of query the database and get things back or edit or update. It uses CRUD. So create read, update, delete, and it'll have methods that correspond to those. So, so um, for instance, if you just have an index method, typically it's gonna be a get out of that, so a retrieve for, the, for cred, and it might just retrieve all of the student's information on a page. And so it'd query that database, it'd get that information, and then it would return it as a view. So just by that route in the URL, students forward slash index or whatever, it knows how to handle that because it actually ASP.NET will have it, excuse me, make a call to that index method and then do something with the view. Um, and then on the view side, that's just like basically HTML and you can have razor syntax in there as well. Um, that just shows, you know, it, it, it's what ser is served up to the user in their browser and you can mix in server server side code using C-sharp with the razor syntax. Uh, at least ASP.NET Core uses razor syntax. I think that might be new. There might be kind of an old syntax you use, but we don't need to get in the weeds there. I think the biggest difference is uh, you use an at symbol instead of like a bracket and a percentage sign. Anyway, so that's kind of the gist of MVC. I don't know what else I want to say about that. Uh, I don't know what else I'll be asked about ASP.NET specifically. They might ask me about some of the components of it or like I don't know I don't know what the right word is but they might ask me about like dependency injection um, which I still don't fully understand I think it's basically like it's almost sort of like a composition where it's like adding outside packages that you you don't necessarily manage yourself into your application for certain things I think honestly MVC itself is a dependency in ASP.NET so you would use in your startup class, I think, in the configure services method, you would add a use MVC method in there, and that would be like injecting a dependency into the application. I think that's how that works. Could be wrong. 
I don't have a lot of experience with it, but trying to learn. All right, so let's go to a couple database questions, and then maybe I'll do some more C sharp questions outside of that. This this 50 question thing is pretty extensive, and some of them I think I are a little bit overkill, but we'll maybe get there. Um, so in terms, I don't actually think I'm going to be asked a lot of SQL questions either because I think that's like a secondary piece. But I do have a decent amount of experience with SQL because my current job, I end up writing a lot of reports for my staff to get information out of our catalog database, um, among other databases, um, to help inform how they do their work. But all the information or all of the experience I have is all from sort of a reading perspective. I don't, I've never actually done any kind of updates or writes to databases in a live production environment, but I have done, done those just in practice. So one of the questions that I think would be asked and, and in the .NET course that I took about preparing for your developer interview, it basically just focuses on joins. So what's an inner join what are the joins and then the other question is what is a stored procedure so um, i'll just go with what are the different types of joins um, typically you're going to use inner joins um, by default if you use the word join just by itself it's it is an inner join and basically what it does is it joins two or more well i guess two tables together based off of matching keys so you have your primary key and your foreign key. So you might do, you might have like a, a customer table and then like a transactions table that holds like, you know, the customer has information about a particular customer and the transactions might have information about like items that they bought, but also, you know, information about the customer too. So you would, you would do an inner join most likely on the customer table and the transactions based off of like the customer ID. So that's the key that you're trying to connect the two tables together on. Um, but then you also have, you have outer joins, you have, you have uh, left join, right join, full join, and those are outer joins. And like you can visualize this as like a, a Venn diagram. So like the two circles that are combined and have the little overlapping section an inner join is just the inner piece where it only picks records or rows in your database that are in common. A left would be everything that's in common, but also on the left table that's being joined. It would basically do everything in the left table, but also the ones that are in common with this other table, vice versa for right. And then like a full outer join would just be like combine these tables and bring everything together if that makes any sense sometimes i'm a little bit confused about the joins like if you don't use the distinct keyword sometimes it seems like you get like a ton of results back when you do like a full join but i haven't had many opportunities where i've really needed to use anything but an inner join so hopefully i answered those okay and then stored procedures are basically kind of like SQL scripts that are set up to run uh, on the database to do particular things. Like, I don't know, you might have like a record purge stored procedure that fires off every night or something. And that just like cleans up the database. But I think the main reason that 
stored procedures are around are because it's more efficient on the database side to use SQL than it is for like your C-sharp code to sort of like inject logic into your database. And so a lot of times um, you want to separate some of that logic out into the database itself into stored procedures. Um, I don't have a lot of experience with that either, but that's generally what they're for. And, and oftentimes stored procedures are, uh, they actually do make changes into the database rather than just uh, just reading like what I'm used to. Oh boy. All right. What else do we got here? So I'm going to look at this top 50 SQL interview question and answers and see, I think I've answered some of these. What is a primary key? So the primary key I think is just the field that you're using in one table to kind of link to another table. So like if you're joining two tables together, like that customer and that transaction table, if you're starting with customer, the primary key is, you know, the customer's ID in that it'll be like, you know, customers dot customer ID. And then transaction would be like, you know, transactions.customerid, and that would be the foreign key. The primary key would be on the customer side. So let's see what they say. A primary key is a combination of fields which uniquely specify a row. This is a special kind of unique key and it has implicit, not null constraint. It means primary key values cannot be null. Well, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Uh, foreign key is one table which can be related to the primary key of another table. Okay, so I think that is what I was trying to say. Relationship needs to be created between two tables by referencing foreign key with the primary key of another table. Yep, exactly. They also have what is a join. This is a keyword used to query data from more tables based on the relationship between the fields of the tables. Keys play a major role when, you, when joins are used. Yep, they also have inner, right, left join, and full join. Um, inner join turns rows when there is at least one match of rows between the tables. Right join returns rows which are common between the tables and all rows of right-hand side table. Simply, it returns all the rows from the right-hand side table even though there are no matches in the left-hand side table, vice versa for left. So I think I got those right. And then full join is, uh, full joins return rows when there are matching rows in any one of the tables. This means it returns all the rows from the left-hand side and all the rows from the right-hand side table. There you go. Ugh, they have some other questions here that I don't really know, like what is normalization or denormalization? I don't know. Normalization is the process of minimizing redundancy and dependency by organizing fields and table of a database. The main aim of normalization is to add, delete, or modify fields that can be made in a single table. I don't know if I really understand these um, descriptions. Uh, one one example of a question that I had in my previous interview a couple years back that like really just sucked was, what's an example of an aggregate function in SQL? And I kind of freaked out and I couldn't remember what those were, but I believe a good answer would be things like the count function where you might count all the rows of a table that do a particular thing. Like, you know, maybe you have uh, registration dates or something and, and you need to find all of the registration dates from this year. And so you'd write a query that says like, 
select count of star from you know table name where registration date is greater than blah 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 2018 and there would be an example of an aggregate function is that count you also have like sum or um what's another one average might be considered an aggregate uh, you might also get asked about group by and how that works and i don't know if i could give a good explanation but it basically will um so like let's go back to that count example so if we if we want to do a count of items based off of like their item type or something so you want like a list that has the count of all the items of different types right so you'd say something like select count star from i don't know table items and then you would just have a group by like item id and then what that would do is in the query that's or the table that's returned it would have the count of each type of item split out into separate rows you probably want to have other stuff in there like the item description so that you know which types of items correspond to what counts but that might be a question that comes up as well and i don't think that there would be much else in terms of of sql i think it's for the most part it's pretty straightforward if it gets into writing to the database i think i'd be not doing so well all right and so the last section that i really want to cover deals more with very general questions about like programming experience and i think my guess here i keep seeing it come up i think a question that i might get asked is um, can you tell me about your favorite programming project so i'm going to go ahead and just give that but if you guys are running into an interview you might think about that one another one that i might do as well um, is you know can you talk about a time uh, in a programming project where you ran into a challenging issue and how did you resolve that um, so let's but let's go back let's go to can you tell me about your favorite programming project and I don't know if this is necessarily appropriate but I think that since I'm coming at this from like a junior level perspective talking about game development is gonna be fine so that's what I'm gonna start with um, alright so Honestly, I think my favorite programming project that I've had recently dealt with the my game jam entry for the One Mechanic Game Jam 5, where I made Rock and Rolling Rocks. And the reason this was my favorite was that it was challenging and also collaborative and just rewarding overall. Um, so the reason it was challenging was that I started focusing on web development um, as opposed to just straight game development and I decided to learn Canvas and JavaScript for this particular game jam and I had never made anything with those so I was learning new technology which was I mean Canvas is kind of weird um, using web development for game dev is also kind of weird because you have like con concurrency issues where like you know when you hit when you get to the website to play the game, it isn't all just there. It has to go through this loading process. So one thing that I learned about was how to handle loading images so that they don't just like pop up one at a time. So that was something I wasn't used to that was interesting learning. It was 
also fun because I got to work with a musician and a lot of times I do game jams by myself. I should also probably in this answer describe what a game jam is because maybe people on the interview panel don't know. So uh, for people who don't know, game jams are basically a very small time window to create a game and it's typically um, sort of an event that people sign up for and oftentimes the game jam will release themes that help prompt people of what types of games to make. And so for this one, the theme that I chose was rock and roll. And so I made this game that was basically you're, you play as a caveman and you're trying to go find fire to get back to your cave. And it's a puzzle game where you have to push these rocks around to, uh, to get the fire and bring it back to your cave. But they're positioned in a way on the screen where um, it's, you can get stuck and not be able to complete the level and you have to restart. And it's kind of like Sokoban if you've ever played that. Um, but going back, um, I also enjoyed it because it was very collaborative. I worked with a musician who I had never met up up until that point. Um, and it was just kind of fun, like working with him and developing new ideas about the game based off of like the music, the music perspective. Um, so that was cool. And then uh, what was the other thing? I said challenging. I said collaborative. Oh, and rewarding. And it was rewarding because... I was really nervous uh, when I started it. I didn't really, I wasn't too confident that I would be able to complete a game that was actually fun. And that's something that is challenging in game dev in general, but also in a short time frame and with a new framework, basically. Um, so it was rewarding seeing that I put myself in this challenging position and was able to make a game that I'm actually really proud of. I really like the pixel art. Um, and the game itself is kind of fun. So that would be my favorite programming project. So um, going to the uh, challenge question, name a time where um, you faced a challenging programming problem. How did you proceed? A lot of these I'm going to go back and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to practice like saying them out loud, but I'm also going to plan ahead and write down some topics, things that I might want to talk about, because you want to talk about your experience. You want them to think that you're not just some kid or whatever, like going in and thinks it'd be cool to be a programmer. You want to have, you want to know what you know, right? You want to be able to present that to them with confidence and show them that you have a lot of experience, even if it's not professional experience. But it's so easy to just like blank out on the spot and not know what to say. So, um, well, okay. Oh, I forgot to talk about design patterns. So this one goes into design patterns. Um, if you're not familiar with what a design pattern is, uh, I've mentioned this before. You can go to uh, gameprogrammingpatterns.com, I think. Let me see. Yeah, gameprogrammingpatterns.com. These are specific ones to game development programming patterns. But basically what it is is just like people have solved common programming problems before. Um, and this, these are just techniques to help you with a problem you might face and do and implement it in a way that's kind of tried and true, like tested and, and whatever. And so the, the backstory on design patterns is that there was this book that came out, I think in the early nineties called design patterns. It's all often referred to as the gang of four, because there are four, I don't know if they were computer scientists or just programmers that wrote this book together. And they had, I believe 23 patterns that 
like before then, I believe they didn't actually have names. Like people may have been implementing them, but they didn't have a specific name that everyone, like if you say like, oh, implement the factory pattern. Like people didn't really know what that meant at that point. Um, but they kind of like helped standardize some of these patterns. And now there's a bunch more of them. Um, and so I've been going through and trying to learn some of them, especially as I look for software development jobs, um, because that's kind of a key piece of software architecting. So uh, for game devs out there, I highly recommend this gameprogrammingpatterns.com website. Check that out. There was also a Humble Bundle a while back. If you guys picked it up, it was an O'Reilly bundle, and they have... I think O'Reilly. No, Head Head First. Uh, they had a design patterns book in there. I'm reading it on my phone right now. Been going through that, and it's it's pretty helpful, at least as an introduction. And I'll also link some YouTube series. Oops. Let's see if that came back. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> I just stepped on my cord and the headphones came out. Um, but there's also some YouTube videos series that outline a lot of these patterns that are really good that I've been trying to go through as well. Um, so anyways, going back to the, the problem. So last year I was making a game. A lot of you guys listening probably watched me stream some of it. Uh, it was basically this logging game and it was going to be, I was going to release it on mobile. Um, anyways, I realized after, you know, designing this and programming this, that I was doing things very inefficiently. And one of the things that was slowing my game down was every single frame, I would look at the UI and check a bunch of things to see which buttons should appear. And that was just taxing. Um, I didn't need to do that. So what I ended up doing was implementing the observer pattern, uh, which I, I would really need to look back at how to do that again. But essentially what it does is it's a way of notifying other like classes when something changes. So what I basically did, instead of like globally checking every frame, did a button change did, or which buttons are active and then drawing them, I switched the the process there to be, okay, I've drawn my buttons. If the user clicks on a button, notify the people that or the things that need to know about it and change the UI. Or also the other bit was um, that happens as well when the player like goes on a particular type of tile. Like if they're on a tree and you're the lumberjack, it has like a little button for an ax that comes up to chop a tree down. And instead of checking every single frame for that, use the observer pattern to basically say, um, when the player moves, send out a notification to the things that need to know and then do the updates. So it cut down that checking dramatically and definitely I felt a performance boost. So that was a problem I faced. It was pretty challenging to implement because I had to deal with events and delegates which are C-sharp keywords that I don't still really feel all that comfortable with. I understand sort of what they are. Like a delegate is basically just a method pointer. It's a way of kind of like abstracting that out or making it more generic, I guess, where a delegate can be like different types of functions or different functions at different times. And events are, <laughs> here we go. How do I describe an event? Um, also starting to lose my voice um, and events are 
kind of tangentially related to delegates. I think events are basically what raises a delegate. So like you'll define a, a delegate which basically like holds a function and that function will be called when it when event fires. If that makes sense. I should read that a little better because I might get asked about events and delegates. Anyways, we're at over an hour, so I think I'm going to go ahead and stop here. But my plan is to, so I have my interview on Thursday. I want to I wanna do an update after the fact and then release that just to let you guys know how my preparation worked out for me and how I thought the interview went. Again, this episode was basically um, to help people think about preparing for a, an interview for a programming position, especially a junior level one. Um, and I'll keep you posted on that. I, I really hope this was beneficial to everybody. It's definitely beneficial practice for me. And it, I have that added kind of like stress of people will actually listen to these things. So um, I'm sure I missed some questions. I'm sure I probably practiced some questions I didn't really need to know. And I plan on letting you know on the next one if that's the case. So for now, thanks guys. Wish me luck. <laughs> I'll see you soon. Have a good week. So if you guys are still listening, I thought this would be funny to add to the end since Rhett's not around. So early on when we were starting Game Devs Quest, Rhett proposed a whole bunch of intro songs and, and ending songs. And I went back through them just hunting for the normal GDQ music. And I saw this one, or I listened to this one, and I just thought, I was like, man, that'd be kind of awesome to end like the interview preparation uh, episode with like let's go to war but then i was thinking like let's throw this on there and see if Rhett notices and if he does notice maybe like each week he'll whip up some new ending to our podcast so <laughs> let's keep this between you and you and me let's not tell him and see how long it takes him to notice but either way Another idea I have is like if you guys have some little quick like 10 second little snippet you want to like build out for us, post it in the Discord and we could we could put some of those up at the end of the episodes. I think that'd be kind of sweet. All right, guys. Have a good week.